Good morning again, church. It is uh, really good uh, to be with you, and I am uh, especially excited. Um, I am especially thankful for Romans 14 and even into 15. Um, I, I, I believe this, this chapter, these 14 and, and into 15, are exceedingly important for the church today, for Cornerstone and for the church in America. God has been speaking to me very loudly through, the, through this passage this week. You don't, need to t- you don't need me to tell you about the divisions that exist in our nation at large and divisions that exist within um, our churches, including our own political matters, COVID matters, government response to COVID matters. We have so many disagreements in our country and in the church. And there is uh, nothing new about Christians disagreeing with one another, even within a small church family. I've said this before as we've been going through the book of Romans, but just to remind you, as we go back to the first century and think of the original and historical context of the book of Romans, it was written to several house churches. We'll read about these in the last chapter, chapter 16 of the book of Romans. But I just want you to have in your minds, again, at the outset of the sermon, the very specific historical context that Paul is writing this chapter in particular to. There were several house churches. There were no buildings like this. There were no great big warehouse churches, church buildings, no warehouse church buildings, no great cathedrals. What we think of as a church building had yet to be invented in the first century. And so the church in Rome was a church of several different congregations that met in people's homes. And those homes, like today, the very largest homes among our church family and and here in Auburn, like those in Rome in the first century, could maybe cram a hundred people into them. And so we should have in our minds these disagreeing Christians in these house churches in Rome in the first century where they know each other really well and they disagree and they disagree about things that are described in some of your translations as opinions, in the translation I have as disputable matters. In those few house churches in Rome, there were really rich people and there were really poor people. There were middle-class people. There were Christians who were very clearly not Jewish, neither ethnically nor culturally. There were other Christians in those small congregations who were Jewish, some of them ethnically Jewish, some of them culturally Jewish. So you have these very diverse, small congregations And they have disagreements. They did not agree about how to live out the Christian life. They didn't agree on how to live in line with the gospel. Does this sound familiar at all? (laughs) This is the first century church. And I think, if you're like me, as we carefully go through this passage today, I am just surprised in many ways at Paul's response 
to these disagreements. And it is incredibly relevant, his response to those disagreements in the first century relating to the disagreements that we have today. Now, I want to kind of do some summary here at the beginning, and then we're going to go through the text uh, in parts, phrase by phrase, and in, in verse by verse in just a moment. But Paul divides the category of division into two categories in first century Roman house churches, the strong and the weak. Now, he doesn't use the word strong, which is interesting. You could almost preach a whole sermon on why he doesn't use the word strong until chapter 15, verse 1. I think there's a reason for that. He doesn't want those of us who might be in the strong category to be attributing that, that adjective to us. He doesn't want that label to be used. And so he doesn't use that label until 15.1 when it's very clear what he's expecting of the strong. He includes himself in this category of the strong. Let me just very briefly, if you have your Bibles open, jump with me to Romans 14 and verse 14. It says there, Paul says, I, Paul, am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. So the strong Christians, those in the strong camp, are those who believe there is no food that is unclean. Paul puts himself in that category of the strong. Some of the Christians believe that you should not be eating meat. And these Christians, Paul calls weak. He describes them as weak. So some, we should not eat meat. Some, we can eat all types of food. So then the question is, well, why are they saying we shouldn't eat meat? It's not because of their body mass index concern. It's not for fitness reasons. It's not for health reasons. It is very likely holdover from Old Testament laws about foods being clean and unclean. Again, verse 14 gives us that leaning. In other words, these would be Christians who are saying there's some foods that we shouldn't eat or it's possible that some of these foods were sacrificed to idols. That's the other reason they might be saying we're not going to eat any meat at all because either some of this meat may be unclean. For example, rabbit was considered unclean. Did you know that? Leviticus? Rabbit. So there might be rabbit in here, and we don't want to eat rabbit, so we're not going to eat any meat. That may be what they're getting at. It may be something else, but it is clear that they are not eating meat. The weak and the strong. Now another thing that he brings up in today's unit, we're just going through verse 12, are that those who are described as weak believe that some days are special. Now, I think it's likely that they are saying that there is one day that is special. Possibly that is Saturday. More likely it was Sunday on the first day when Jesus rose. Very early in the New Testament, we see this is when Christians gathered. So Paul is describing those who say some days are special, either one day a week. This is the day where our behavior is different and it's special. Paul describes that as the weak position. And then he describes the strong as all days are equal. So I'm summarizing what's in the passage that was just read before we actually go through 
the passage. You tracking with me so far, church? Okay, so here comes the surprising, this text is just so surprising to me. In fact, let me just say this before we, we, we even get into it. We tend to have our own biases and we have our expectations of what we want the Bible to say. Or at least I'll say I have my own biases and I have my own expectations of what I expect the Bible to say. And what I expect Romans 14 and 15 to say is, well, if Paul's in the strong camp, then what Romans 14 and 15 should say is here's how we get everybody into the strong camp. That's my bias. That is not what Romans 14 and 15 say. It says just about the opposite of that. It says the opposite of that. So let's allow God's word to speak to us now. Let's put aside our biases. And let's look, let's take a look at the beginning of Romans 14, just the very beginning of verse 1. So he begins by saying, Accept him, accept her whose faith is weak. This is where Paul begins with this issue. There's this division in the congregations, in the house churches. He begins by addressing the majority in the churches. The majority are the strong. And so that's who he's hitting up first here. And he's saying to the strong, accept him. Accept her. Not meet with them after church, get them on the same page as you, and then get them have correct doctrine and be back next week. That is not what he says. Accept him. Accept her whose faith is weak. Paul begins by addressing the majority, the strong, those who eat everything, by saying accept them. Those who won't eat the meat, accept them. That's his starting point. Back to the text. Verse 1, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Those folks in the flesh would have a tendency to say, yeah, Jesus was on our side. He declared all foods clean. The book of Acts is on our side if they had access to that. We have access to that. The Apostle Paul's on our side. And so there would be a tendency to look down on those who won't eat rabbit or who won't eat meat because it may have been sacrificed to Zeus, whatever. He doesn't give us the specific details. I think it's the former, not the latter. But whatever the issue is, don't judge them. That's where Paul starts in Romans 14 and goes all the way through 15. So, the faith, this is what Doug Moo says, this is really important. Doug Moo says this, he says, the faith with respect to which these people are weak, except him whose faith is weak, the faith with respect to which these people are weak, therefore, is related to their basic faith in Christ, but one step removed from it. This is really important. It involves their individual outworking of the Christian faith, their convictions about what faith allows and prohibits. We are not talking about the gospel here. Both of these groups, the strong and the weak, are Christians who are justified by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. They are all believers. So the debate here is one step removed from the gospel. We're not dealing with people who don't understand the gospel. So Paul is very willing to draw lines and say, hey, that's not acceptable. He does this, for example, in Galatians, where he says so strongly, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. We can't disagree. We can't agree to disagree about the gospel. Paul is saying, if I come and preach another gospel, if an angel comes and preach another gospel, there's a lot in this verse. So our authority doesn't come from Paul's apostleship. It doesn't come from an angel. If, if someone who is designated an apostle preaches a gospel other than the true gospel, let him be condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, in case you missed it, let me just say it again. Are you really saying this, Paul? If anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So Paul is one who will draw lines and say, no, this is essential. Believing that we are saved by grace, not grace plus circumcision or grace plus these dietary laws or grace plus being baptized or grace plus whatever you want to fill the blank in, that destroys the gospel. The gospel is by faith in what Christ did for us, what we already celebrated at our time of confession. There is nothing added to it. So I'm saying all this to say, these folks who are described as weak understand the true gospel. So accept them. What they're doing is one step removed from what is essential. It's okay. Don't judge them. These non-meat eaters, these ones who we're going to see in a moment, view one day as very special, whether that was Saturday, whether that was Sunday, whether that was certain feast days, it's okay. Don't judge them. So Paul is getting at these tendencies that, that we have. And I, I don't know if you're like me, so let me just tell you the, the, the way I am. Like, I grew up, and you can grow up in a Christian home or anything like that, but I grew up, um, like one of the things drilled into me, I don't know what was drilled into you when you were a kid, but one of the things drilled into me is, is no elbows on the table, right? No elbows on the table. Like, you put elbows on the table, I mean, the house could fall down, you're not going to live the next day, and then when you get up, you, you, you push the chair in. Like the idea that there'd be a table without chairs pushed into the table after people got up, that, that, that's like, you know, the earth is going to come off its axis and stop spinning if this happens. So whatever you might be brought up with, which is, I mean, we are definitely talking about a disputable matter here, right? Amen? Like whether you push the chair in when you get up or not. Uh, th th this is not the resurrection of Jesus. Are you following me? Like the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a little different whether we believe in that or not or whether we push the chair in when we, we get up from the table or not. So I'm saying all this to say that we have a tendency to project the importance of no elbows on the table and pushing the chairs in on those who don't and to look down upon them and judge them. And Paul is saying about a much more significant issue than elbows on the table, don't judge them. He begins speaking to the majority and to the strong, and he says to defer to the weak. 
Paul addresses both the weak and the strong, but he focuses special attention on the need for the strong to give up their rights to avoid creating spiritual problems for the weak. This is how Paul responds to division in first century Rome. By putting the responsibility on the strong, on the more mature, to not judge them and to let them continue. We'll see more of this as we move forward. Jump forward. I don't want this is the text two weeks from today, but I have to just jump to it briefly. 15.1. This is where he first mentions the, phrase, the word strong. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It is a selfish, fleshly thing for me to be on a mission to get everyone to push in their chairs and put their elbows, get their elbows off the table. Don't do that. This isn't what should keep us up at night. This isn't what has to unite us as congregations. Even these things that are much more significant. So strong Christians are to defer to weak Christians, understanding their disagreements concern disputable matters, or as your translation may have it, opinions. We are dealing with disputable matters here. And so much, from the Christian's perspective, falls into this category of disputable matters. An important question for Christians to ask in the year 2022 is, is, fill in the blank, is this a disputable matter? Most of the things dividing our country, dividing churches, some churches right now are flourishing and growing. Not all of them, but some of those churches are flourishing and growing because they are majoring on disputable matters and other churches are emptying to go to, to, to be with those who are like-minded about these things that matter very little. I'm all for our churches growing and exploding and becoming large. As I mentioned, the house church is being 100. It's God's intention for the church to multiply and to get to be big and to make more churches. That's what we want. But I'm afraid what we have a lot in America and even in our neighborhood and down into Roseville especially is we have churches that are, are blowing up not because the gospel is going into dark places and redeeming people and they're coming in but because other churches are empty because we so disagree about these indisputable matters we have not taken in Romans 14 and 15. So an important question to ask, is this a disputable matter? Now some of us here are in the strong category. Some of us are in the weak category. Some of us in different issues are, are, are in both. I mean in our church family. And we're going to get to this um, more in, in a moment. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, um, as far as how do we discern you may be asking the question already, how do we discern what's a disputable matter? 
And uh, in somewhat scholarly language, he says, in short, the most fundamental tool for establishing what is or is not an indisputable is careful, faithful exegesis. That is, careful study of the scriptures. What is a disputable matter? Is this particular issue a disputable matter? This is an important question for us to be asking. And how do we answer that question? We answer that question by studying the scriptures. And what we can say for certain is Christians who think on certain days are more sacred or more special, and some Christians think every day is the same, that's a disputable matter, according to Romans 14. Some Christians think we shouldn't eat these foods, and some Christians say we can eat all foods. That's a disputable matter. We need to be asking this question about the things that are dividing us today and dividing Christian families today. I'm talking about Christian extended families. Oh my gosh. How many of you, I hate to get testimonies on this, but raise your hand. How many of us have had divided family gatherings over disputable matters? Raise your hands. Are you kidding me? I'm talking about Christian extended families. We're fighting among our families. Have we read Romans 14? Have we read Romans 15? It puts the responsibility on the mature to defer to the weak and to recognize this is a disputable matter. So, I need to get, pick up the pace here. We've made it through one verse. So let's say, pick up the pace, Mike. Say it, pick it up. Here we go, pick up the pace. We have 12 verses. Let's pick up the pace. Verses two and three. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything, that's Paul, that's me, must not look down on him who does not. It is against God's will for me to look down on the vegetarian who is a vegetarian not because of fitness or health issues, but they are a vegetarian. What was I saying? Vegetarian. Vegetarian. They're a vegetation. They're <laughs> vegetation. I need to sit down. God's word is telling me if a Christian is, what's the word? Vegetarian. Thank you. If they're that, for spiritual or biblical reasons, it is against God's will for me to look down on them. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. So it goes both ways here. I've been hitting the strong. But if you think you can't eat rabbit or you think... Christians shouldn't be eating meat. Paul speaks to them as well. Don't condemn. Because those of us who, who have more rules in our own lives or in our families, we are likely, rules that aren't in Scripture, we're, we're likely to look at others and go, yeah, 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 you're not quite where I am, and to look down on them. So Paul is saying to those in the church in Rome who don't eat meat, do not condemn the man who does. 
For God has accepted him. God has accepted both of these Christians, both of these categories of Christians in these house churches in Rome in verses 2 and 3. So, Scripture does not say, Christian, get on the correct side of this disputable matter. And this is the tendency of those of us Bible people, those of us who are in churches that that care very much about the authority of Scripture and place ourselves under its authority. This this tends to be our tendency. Get on the correct side of this disputable matter. That is not what Romans 14 and 15 teaches. Rather, it says not to look down and not to judge either direction. If you have really restrictive ways that you live out your Christian life, okay. Don't judge those who are exercising their liberty and freedom on disputable matters. You you have disputable matters and and you see them as liberty. Don't look down on those who, who, who go over here. This is what Romans 14 and 15 is teaching in verses 2 and 3. Let's come back to the text. 14 and verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Here's the spirit of this text. The spirit of this text is we have a tendency, if we don't do it directly to their faces, Most of us don't. We do it in quiet conversations at home. We have a tendency to judge. And that is not your role, first century Roman Christians, to judge those others in disputable matters. That is not your role. Those persons that you disagree with, they have a judge. And it's not you. And it's not me. It is the Lord Jesus. Don't take his role. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Verse 4. To his own master, he stands or falls. And he will stand. This text is saying the strong and the weak Christians will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord is able to do this. It is not our job. So I was saying verse 5, but I think I meant verse 4. Leave accountability regarding disputable matters to the Lord. Romans 14 and 15 teaches us that that is his job. If there's going to be accountability or judgment or what have you, loss of reward or whatever, I don't know, but whatever it's going to be, whatever might be coming, it seems like nothing is coming to either of these folks. Because it says the Lord is able to make him stand. But if anything is coming, that's between God and them. It's not your role. Is this freeing? We don't have to lie in bed at night and think, oh my gosh. So-and-so went to a rated R movie. Oh my gosh. I need to rush over there. I need to judge them. I'm not sure they're going to make it. They ate rabbit. I can't sleep. We're laughing, but that was probably happening. Can you believe? You know, the folks that are not eating rabbit were probably at night thinking, yeah, most of the churches 
They're eating this food that's unclean. It's pretty shocking what the Bible says the solution is to this problem. It doesn't say, go ahead and eat rabbit. It says just about the opposite of that. So verse 4, God has not appointed you or me as judge over disputable matters. It is the Lord Jesus who judges. Come back to verse 5. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Are you kidding me? We're the church about truth. Wow. This Christian liberty thing is is big. Did, Did you hear what this just said? So the person who won't eat rabbit or won't worship or go to work or or play football or go to the gladiator games on a certain day should be fully convinced in his or her own mind. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, if I were writing the Bible, I would say they need to understand Christian liberty. They're free to go to the gladiator game. They're free to go watch the 49ers on Sunday. (laughs) They're still playing, right? That's what this text says. The person who says they shouldn't go to watch the 49ers game because it's a Sunday, the Lord's Day, that person should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's what verse 5 says. That's pretty crazy. That's what the Bible teaches. So, I've lost track of my points here. Leave accountability regarding disputable matters to the Lord. Um, Here's what what Carson says um, about this. If we violate our consciences when we think that that what we are doing is wrong, even though, according to Paul, the action itself is not wrong. So what he's addressing here is why would the person who thinks he cannot eat meat, why should that person be fully convinced in his own mind? Here's why. That person should not violate his conscience. Because then we will find it easier to violate our conscience when the envisaged action is wrong, with the result that our conscience will be less able to steer us clear of sin. So for the person in the first century who on this disputable matter says, I can't eat meat, Paul's counsel, the Holy Spirit's counsel, inspiring the word of God, says that person should be fully convinced in his own mind and he or she shouldn't eat meat. Because that person believes it's wrong to eat meat, so don't do it. So the integrity that that person has of their own conscience is more important than whether they recognize the freedom they have to eat meat or not. Do you see that? Say yes. And I hope you see it. And if you don't, talk to me after the service. This is pretty crazy. This is not commonly 
taught, I think, what I am teaching. What I am teaching is what Romans 14 actually says. That whichever side you're on, strong or weak, to be fully convinced in your own mind. So, uh, rather than telling Christians to get on the same page regarding sacred days or non-sacred days, he tells each to be fully convinced. This is the issue of having integrity before God and living out one's conscience on on disputable matters is more important than getting on the right side of disputable matters. All right. I I did pick up the pace, um, but let's keep moving here. So let's look at verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. You see that? They're doing it to worship the Lord. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord. These are both God-centered Christians, the strong and the weak. For he gives thanks to God. The person who's eating meat is praying before the meal and giving thanks to God. We see this tradition of praying before we eat here in Romans 14. It's a very early tradition in the church. The person who eats meat gives thanks to God. And the person who is abstaining from meat gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. I mean, this seems like it could be a big deal. Whether it's a feast day, whether it's their view of Sabbath on Saturday, whether it's their view of Sabbath on Sunday. So I'm guessing they were meeting on Sundays, and I'm guessing those who believe that Sunday was a special day and that you should refrain from certain things on Sundays, if that's actually what's happening here, it looks like they were probably gathering on on Sundays. And so that's how they were able to be together. But some recognized there was freedom, and some thought, no, there, there are special and sacred days here. The way the Bible responds to it is very different than the way that we have a tendency to respond. Look at how Luther responds to this issue. Martin Luther, if anywhere, the day, the Sabbath, Christian Sunday is what he's referring to here, viewing Sunday as a Christian Sabbath. If anywhere, the day is made holy for the mere day's sake. If anywhere, anyone sets up its observance on a Jewish foundation, going back to Torah, going back to the Hebrew scriptures, that that's the basis for why we don't go to a football game or a gladiator game on a Sunday. That's what he's saying. If that's the person's perspective, Luther says, then I order you to work on it, to ride on it, meaning ride your horse on it, to dance on it, to feast on it, to do anything that shall remove this encroachment on Christian liberty. Do you see what Luther's doing? Luther's saying we need to get everyone into the strong camp, right? What does the Bible say? Does the Bible say what Luther is saying? It doesn't. Luther's saying if you're in the weak camp, those Christians in the congregation who are in the strong camp should go outside their house on the Sabbath and dance and drink and celebrate in a godly way, of course, but they should dance and drink 
have a beer, and dance outside their house to get them on the page of Christian liberty. That's what Luther's saying. Go ride your horse right by their house. Those who think you cannot ride your horse on Sunday. That is the opposite of what Romans 14 says. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Here's somewhat of a summary from one of the contributors to this, this book, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend reading, but there's good things in it, from Sabbath to the Lord's Day. Here's a good summary. While he, Paul, forbids us from stating that Christians may not observe Sunday as the Christian day par excellence. Did you get that? So Paul isn't forbidding us to forbid those who are doing that. He also forbids us from posing such observance as a duty upon our fellow believers. This is, this is actually what the scriptures are teaching. But this specific point is saying those who are strong shouldn't pass judgment on those who are doing this. So, your view of sacred days or no sacred days and meat eating or no meat eating is a disputable matter. This is what the Bible is saying. Both groups must live God-centered lives, giving him thanks before they eat. That's what matters. That's what matters. We should be thinking in 2022, what are disputable matters? How does Romans 14 and 15 apply to those disputable matters? So let me give you a, a theoretical case scenario here. You guys seen this movie, Chariots of Fire? Those of you who've seen it, you know which side he's on. Those of you who've seen it, would he be considered strong or weak? He would be considered weak. He would be considered weak. Why is he considered weak? He's considered weak because he considers one day more sacred than another. Eric Liddell, this great missionary, if you haven't seen the movie, you should see it. He's an incredible missionary. He's also an Olympic athlete. He won a gold medal in the 1924 Olympics, but he didn't medal or compete in the main event that he was supposed to compete in because when they got to the final rounds or the preliminary round or whatever round it was, it was scheduled for Sunday. And he said, I cannot run on Sunday. God forbids me. I'm going to gather with God's people in worship. I'm not going to the Olympic meet that I came here for on that particular day. So let's look at another Christian. You recognize this guy? Do we have any Seahawks fans here? Pastor Adam? So this is Russell Wilson. He is also a Christian. He works on Sundays, playing in the NFL. He's not working right now, but he works when his team's in the playoffs on Sundays. Which group would he be in? The strong. So let's imagine these guys lived at the same time. And it's a Sunday, and Russell Wilson's team has a bye. And Eric Liddell has been to gathered worship like this, and he invites Russell Wilson over to his house to sing psalms with his family and worship Jesus. And he does this thinking he's not free to play football or watch football or run a track meet. That was Eric Liddell. He invites Russell Wilson, who's in his church, to come over to his house. Should Russell Wilson organize a football game outside of his house? 
It's exactly opposite to what this text is teaching. Accept him whose faith is weak. He who abstains does so to the Lord. Eric Liddell is doing this to the Lord and giving thanks. Russell Wilson should go in there and eat and not not bring up this issue and give thanks to God and eat with him and enjoy that day with him. All right, let's finish up here. Last few verses, 9 through 12. Let me just read them and we'll close this out. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. This unit of scripture leaves us thinking not about any of us being in judgment toward others, but God being in judgment over all of us with this clear mandate of showing grace for disputable matters to one another. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself. To God. So a spirit of humility, anticipating the coming judgment of King Jesus, is the perspective needed regarding disputable matters. His judgment is not a do-it-yourself project for me or for you. It is his. And God wants us to remain unified and to defer to the weak. So when that brother invites me over who doesn't eat meat, I don't eat meat. When that brother or sister invites me over and they have this particularity about them that I might be opposed to, taking off my shoes when I come in their house or putting a mask on when I come into their house, then I put a mask on when I go into their house. I take my shoes off when I go into their house. This is a disputable matter. It doesn't matter compared to the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, to the gospel, to these other things that the the scriptures make clear are indisputable matters. May God help us to take in Romans 14 and 15, and may this help to unify our church and other churches. Let's, Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, there are very few things that are presented to us in the New Testament as essential, as things to divide over, as things that would cause us to leave one congregation and go to another one, rather than deferring. Lord, help us to be eager to put aside our own preferences and even theological positions on disputable matters for the greater sake of giving thanks to you, knowing that you are the judge and we are not. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.